So Mark mentioned it, and we read it, but we are working through the book of James this fall as a community. Um, I just want to say a little bit about the book before we get started so you kind of know what's going on as a whole. Um, You know, if you're new to the the Christian faith, um, the Bible, uh, you may not know this, but there are um, a lot of the New Testament is uh, full of letters. So the New Testament's full of letters. Paul, the Apostle Paul, one of the emissaries, ambassadors of Jesus, wrote most of those letters, but a few of them are written by other people. Um, James, the book that we're in uh, this fall, is in fact a letter. However, it may have been a, a sermon in its original, uh, um, original form. Either way, it is almost certainly, James is, almost certainly one of the earliest Christian documents that we have in our possession. James names himself as the brother of Jesus. He's the brother of Jesus. That means that he is a Palestinian Jew who is uh, steeped in the Jewish tradition. That comes out a lot in his writing. But beyond that, to be honest with you, it's really hard to reconstruct why James is writing. I mean, it's hard to reconstruct the exact occasion. Um, We just call James a Catholic epistle. And the reason we call James a Catholic epistle is because the word Catholic means universal. It means general. And James doesn't say he's writing to any particular Christian, like a lot of the letters do, or a particular community. He's writing to all Christians everywhere. And here, I think, is basically, uh, as James writes to us, what James wants us to know. We can say that this letter is basically about how to grow up as a Christian, how to grow up, how to mature, how to develop. On that topic, um, James has, sometimes it's frustrating for me who likes linear thinkers, but James has a really sprinkler uh, approach to his rhetoric. And what I mean by that is that James, if you read through him, he sort of uh, scatters and strikes at several directions at once. Um, In one paragraph, you might read about economic injustice. The next, you might read about judging your neighbor. The next paragraph may be about taming your tongue. And the next, about prayer. James's attention is dispersed, and with that comes remarkable passion in his approach. In fact, if you ever read James, it may feel at times as if he is yelling at you (laughs) with the force of his words. Now, that being said, I, I just don't want you to miss the basic contour and, and, um, and sort of uh, where, where the letter's going in terms of what it wants to say to us. Basically, James wants us to grow up. That's kind of the basic message. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to mature. And the grace of James, the kindness of James to us is in his clear, forceful challenge for us to live the Christian life with full integrity. Uh, Mark Twain's famous quote about the Bible, he has a lot probably, but uh, this one is entirely appropriate with James. Twain once wrote this, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand that bother me. There's not much enigmatic with James. Uh, James is not hard to understand. It's the words that you will understand, (laughs) those are the ones that will bother you. And I can tell you this, James really wants us to be bothered. Because he's convinced that we could still give ourselves away more fully and more joyfully to Jesus. So this morning and the next Sunday, we're going to look at this particular passage, same passage both, both weeks, and we're just going to ask the question that James, I think, wants us to ask and wants to answer for us, how is it that we actually grow up as Christians? How do we mature? How do we develop? How do we move from infancy to adulthood? This morning, we're going to look at the call to listen. And then next week, the call to do what we've heard, very simply, listening and doing, 
in James's counsel, very simple, but very important. Three things this morning I want you to see about the call to listen. The first is this. I want you to see what the command to listen actually says about who we are. What does the command to listen say about us? Second, I want you to see the context in which listening to God actually occurs. Where do you go to actually hear from God? And then finally, I want you to see what is it that motivates us to listen? What, what gears us up, what excites us to listen to God in the first place? The command, the context, and the motivation. So first of all, what the command to listen says about us, and I'll, I'll just be very clear here, the command to listen tells us that we are beings that need to be led. We are beings that need to be led. We, we need leadership in our lives. The command to listen assumes that self-sufficiency uh, that self-reliance is not really a true mark of maturity like we think it is. Let me show you the command from the, the passage this morning. Look at verse 19 with me. You have it in your, um, in your bulletin. James writes in verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear. See, hear it there. And then in verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. That's that little paragraph there that we're gonna be in most of the morning. But from both of those verses, and from the next verse that follows, verse 22, where we are called there, not only to do, but also to hear, we can say this. Listening is a crucial part of what it means to be a Christian. Listening is a crucial part of what it means to be a Christian. Christianity is, in many ways, a call for you to stop and to listen. Now, why is that? Well, you know, it's interesting, you find this advice in a lot of wisdom texts. I'm sure you heard this growing up. I did. Uh, um, I heard that, you know, we have uh, one mouth and two ears because you're supposed to, what, listen twice as, as much as you uh, speak. That's not in the Bible anywhere, by the way. But, you know, uh, the idea of listening and being quick to listen is in wisdom texts all throughout history. It's common sense. What the Bible gives us is, um, is the reason behind that. It gives us the background behind our conventional wisdom to listen. The Bible tells us that listening is crucial because we were created to be followers. You were made to be a follower. You were made to be relationally responsive. So for example, in Genesis one through two, the opening pages of the Bible, we learn there that God has not only made us um, um, as human beings, as individuals, but he's made us in such a way that we cannot be left to ourselves and still be healthy. The, whole, you know, the big picture in Genesis 1, to new is that, 1 through 2 is it's all connected. We're connected with God. We are connected with his creation. We are connected with one another. In fact, the very first thing called not good in all of creation is autonomy. It is aloneness. It is not good that man should be alone. And in Genesis 3, the failure of the first couple that brought disaster into the world is the failure to listen. So what's the temptation? What does the serpent say to Eve and Adam? He says, did God really say? A failure to trust that God did really say and to listen to his leadership. You know, it's interesting. I think that's why in the Jewish tradition, the first thing that a child would memorize growing up, so the first thing that would, would come to mind that, that a child would learn in terms of uh, forming her imagination for what it meant to grow up was something called the Shema. The Shema is found in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine, and here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The rest of the Shema that she was called to memorize then told her all the ways that she was going to go about her life and hear and listen to the word of God in the context of her daily routines. What the community wanted the child to know first was that if she was going to grow up, if she was going to grow into maturity, she had to hear whatever else you do. Listen. The first parable in three of the Gospels, and the Synoptic Gospels, the first parable that Jesus, uh, that, that Jesus tells is the parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower basically says this, the only soil, the only kind of person that ever bears fruit, the only soil that matures is the one who hears the word. At the end of that parable, guess what Jesus says? He reiterates his point. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, I just told you the same thing over and over again. I just want you to see that the entire Bible comes to bear on this text in James. Friends, the Bible, in the Bible, the command to listen, the command to reject self-sufficiency and to welcome God's leadership into your life, this is the first principle of maturity. And it's important to say that out loud, as simple as it might seem, because it's really different than how we typically think about what constitutes a grown-up in our culture, right? And think about it, growing up in our time and place means what? It means being able to make it on your own, right? It means being able to say, look, I can handle this. I got this, financially, however else. I don't need anyone else's help. I can tell you that those are the four scariest words that my wife never wants to hear from me. Um, the four words that she hates to hear the most from me is, honey, I got this. Those words have cost us a lot of money um, in our 13 years together. They're usually followed by, well, I guess it could be worse. You know, it could be worse. Wendell Berry is, um, is an insightful writer, and he has this essay on Huck Finn. It's a strange essay, but he says, this in the essay is important. He says this, our greatest cultural heroes are almost all individualists in character. Think about it. The contemplative, the artist, the hunter, the cowboy, the general, the president, they live lives dedicated to the territory of the solitary and self-reliance. And then he says this, we've messed up. We have imagined boyhood, so he's writing about Huck Finn. You remember the end of Huck Finn. Huck Finn's about a boy sort of getting the, the freedom of, of growing up, right? He says, we've imagined uh, uh, the admirable freedom of boyhood as our real uh, vision for maturity. This is a quote. Boyhood and bachelorhood have remained our norms for liberation for women as well as men. We have hardly begun to imagine the coming to responsibility that is the meaning and the liberation of really growing up. Now, why does he pick on boyhood and bachelorhood? Because those figures, at least in our imagination, are unregulated by the responsibility of answering to anyone else. And what Barry is saying is that we flip the script. What we've done is we've taken adolescence, and we've made adolescence our norm for adulthood. When real maturity, real freedom, is the responsibility of answering to genuine authority. And all the Bible says is that authority is God. And the Bible assumes that you never leave, we never leave the foolishness of adolescence and our own faith. <laughs> if we are unwilling to reject self-sufficiency, self-reliance, 
unregulated liberation and listen instead to him. That's what the command says about us. Just really simply, be quick to hear, James says. Listen. Listen where you are. Listen. Receive the word. That's the first mark of being an adult. So how is it that we listen? How do we actually listen? Well, look with me next at the context in which listening occurs. I want you to notice that in the passage, if you look there with me, James in that little paragraph really says nothing about the mechanics of listening. And all I mean by that is he doesn't give a scheme for reading the Bible. I mean, no one could afford Bibles in any way. They didn't have personal Bibles. He doesn't tell you how often you ought to meditate or things like that. What he does instead is he tells us where you can go, where we can go in order to hear from God. And the answer is the church. The context in which we listen to God is the community of God. That's where we hear from him. Look at me again at verses 19 through 20. James writes, Know this, my beloved brothers. Beloved brothers are the family of God. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now you see in that command when it says be quick to hear, it's hard to know there if James is saying be quick to hear from each other or be quick to hear the word of God. And it's hard to tell because immediately after saying be quick to hear, he goes into our social lives. Slow to anger, right? Slow to speak. And then right after that, he says, but receive the implanted word that is able to save your soul. And the next verse after that, he says, what? He says, be a hearer of the word. So it's unclear if James is saying, be quick to hear the community, so you all, or be quick to hear the word of God. And it's unclear because James is intentional. Here's why. James assumes that you need both the community and the word in order to hear from God. You see, James assumes that you will hear the word of God only in one place, in the community of God. James assumes that we cannot neglect the church if we're gonna listen to God. That is to say this, we can't replace the community. What we do here um, and throughout the week, the gathering of God's people, you can't replace the grittiness of real relationships with people that you never chose. <laughs> you, you can't replace relational toil and love. You can't replace any of that with downloaded sermons or just coming on a Sunday morning and being a spectator. If you wanna hear from God, you have to be embedded in the people of God. And James is about to tell us what that feels like. Three things I want you to see from this little short section really quickly on what it's like to listen to God in the community of God's people. The first is this. There will be conflict in the church. There will be conflict in the church. That James has to discuss the issues of not listening and has to tell us not to be angry and to be slow to speak. And later on, James goes through the, sort of the list of partiality and of jealousy and of coveting. What that means is that there are a lot of people getting together and a lot of people are hurting one another. And remember, this is a general epistle, right? This is written to churches everywhere. This wasn't to a particular community. But I, I would, um, gosh, I would challenge you to show me any part in the Bible, any counsel in the Bible given to any community, either particular or general, that does not assume relational conflict in the context of listening to God. It's not a good thing, but it's reality. If you've never had conflict in the church, if you've never rubbed up against sinners <laughs> um, uh, that you didn't choose, 
then the Bible assumes that you're probably not very invested in the community in the first place. Or if you're someone who hops around every time that you experience conflict of any kind, and you can expect to be hopping around the rest of your life. The way forward, the way to really listen to God, to move forward as a community, as a people, is through conflict in the community, not by avoiding it. It is through the grittiness of being loved and loving people who are really struggling with sin. Have to be embedded. There's conflict there. Number two, one of my favorites, assume that you naturally and that I naturally overestimate your own wisdom. <laughs> assume that your, your, your first step is to overestimate your own wisdom and that you are in denial about your own anger. <laughs> James says, be slow to speak and be slow to anger. Why? Why? Because our first instincts in conflict are usually wrong. <laughs> our first instinct is to believe that our anger is justified and that our words are actually necessary to bring wholeness and healing. But James says that when things heat up, we give ourselves way too much credit. <laughs> now, he never says don't ever speak, and he doesn't say that you should never be angry. He just says that it's wiser to assume that you initially are more generous to yourself and your relationships than you are to others. One commentator puts it like this, he says, most of us have to confess that holy anger belongs to a state of maturity to which we have not attained. <laughs> Nevertheless, an angry spirit is not an attentive one. Those who would listen to God must train themselves to be listeners and to that end must cultivate a reticent tongue and a calm temper. Put it this way, your first step in conflict, James says, is to take a step back and to assume that you are quick in all the ways that God has called you to be slow and that you're slow in all the ways that God has called you to be quick. Assume that you overestimate your own wisdom and that you're in denial about your own anger. And then finally, James would have us see that humility in the gospel is the way forward. Humility is in the gospel is the way forward. Look at verse 21 with me. Verse 21, James writes this, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Receive what meekness, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. This is remarkable. What James is saying there is what you really need to hear God. What you need to hear through the noise of conflict and the noise of your own self-centeredness is something that you already have. It is the word that's already been planted, right? It's the word that you've already been given. It's the, it's the word buried inside of you. And if you look back, it is the same word of verse 18. The word that James says gave birth to you in the first place as a Christian. And what James is saying is that in our life together, to really hear from God, to, be, to have postures of listening to him, we must learn to return to the gospel over and over and over again for its power in our lives. We have to learn to preach the same message to ourselves over and over again. And it might sound like this. Learn to say things like this. God no longer holds my offenses against me. Pretty great thought, huh? The God of the universe no longer holds your offenses against you. He has dropped the charges against you. The word that gave you birth, doesn't that free you up to let other people drop their charges against you or to, for you to not hold charges against everybody else? 
the God of the universe has dropped the charges against you, can you also think about um, dropping the ways that you've been offended? Or this one. What does it mean to say that my righteousness, your righteousness comes from Jesus alone. Your rightness comes from Jesus alone. Think about how often we fight to be right. Think about that. I mean, if we believe as a people and as individuals that our rightness comes from him alone, we don't have to be vindicated in every conflict. We don't have to fight for our preferences to be honored on every occasion, because why? Because it is the righteousness of Jesus on which our identity stands. And surely it's the righteousness of Jesus on which the church and creation stands. You don't have to fight to be right on every occasion. Do you see what James is saying? We can do this a million more ways. If, if, you, want, if, um, if you want to inculcate the virtues that are needed to move in the community and to listen to God, return to the message again and again. Return to the message that gave birth to you, the grace of God, even in the cor- course of our conflict. We hear the word of God in the community of God, even when life in that community is a struggle. Here's the last thing I want you to see, because that sounds like bad news, I think, probably. The good news for us this morning, I want you to see what is it that motivates us to listen? What is it that motivates us to listen, to stay in the first place? Um, What makes us turn our hearts towards God? Look back at me at verse 18. You see that? This This is the first paragraph that we read this morning. The last verse, here's what James writes. Of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So James says that God intends for you or has you or names you as the first fruits of his creatures. Now, we don't use that word a lot now. (laughs) The, The word first fruits is an agrarian term and it referred to the first part of the crop to be ripe. It was the part that was, um, that was held in the great, it was the best part of the, the crop. It was the part of the harvest that was the most exalted, the most cherished. And what James is telling you is that when it comes to the will of God, the power of God, when he looks out over all of creation, he has termed you as the most cherished portion. You are the chosen portion. You are the most exalted, most beloved of all that God has made. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you, ever, have you ever wanted someone to pick you? To pick you above everyone else? Have you ever longed for the spotlight to fall on you? Have you ever wanted someone to look at you and to say he's the one or she's the one that I'm most taken with? James is telling you this morning that the one who has it all has looked at it all and he has chosen you to cherish above everything else. Now listen to me, would you be willing to be led, would you be willing to listen to someone who can love you like that? You know, one of my, um, my favorite things about, about being a pastor is I have the opportunity to do um, premarital counseling. Um, it is awesome, it is, uh, ends up being a crash course in getting to know a couple um, very deeply, very quickly. On one occasion, I was with a young couple in my office and we were reading Ephesians 5 together. Ephesians 5 is where Paul charges uh, husbands and wives with different responsibilities. And um, just so you know, um, Ephesians 5 is really hard for us to listen to some because it uses words that, that just are sort of out of sync with our modern ears. And, um, and so I, I read, first of all, to, um, 
the, the first part that Paul had written in Ephesians 5, and it's there he says to the wives, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. We were sitting there in my office, and the bride-to-be heard that, and she sat up, and she got tense, and she kind of bristled. I said, what's wrong? And she goes, well, I don't like that. I don't like that part. That seems demeaning, and it seems wrong. And I said, well, let's keep reading. And we read the next part of Ephesians 5, and the next part of Ephesians 5 goes like this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or without wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And when we finished reading, I looked up and said, look, do you think you could find it in your heart to follow a man who loved you like that? Could you follow a man whose whole life, even unto his death, was given for your health and your beauty and your wholeness? Could you follow a man who cherished you above everything else? And she smiled and said, of course I could. Absolutely I could. I could follow someone like that. Here's the great part. We were kind of talking to each other and unprovoked, unsolicited, her fiance interjected and said, I would too. He said, I would have no problem following a man, or anyone else for that matter, who loved me like that at the cost of his own life. And you know, in the course of our counseling, in the course of our conversation from that point forward, it never occurred in the conversation. It never occurred to us again that submission, listening, following, in the context of loving authority was beneath the dignity of a human being. Here we were all together, male and female created in the image of God, and we all could say yes. I would be quick to hear. Yes, I would be quick to follow. James says that God has redeemed you, not just to do it, but to present you as the first fruits, <laughs> to treasure you, to cherish you above anything else in creation. He sees you even now as perfectly ripe, ready to pick um, for himself. Why resist his voice? Why resist his counsel, his leadership, even when it cuts across your own will? Be quick to hear. Quick to hear. Quick to listen, O Israel. One final word before we end for next week. The portion called the first fruits um, was not only the cherished portion of the crop, it was also, the, if you read the Old Testament, it was the priestly portion as well. And the four, first fruits were given to the priests as a sign of the harvest to come. So the first fruits came in, and it was a sign that there was still more work to be done. As you leave this morning, remember that your life is given to you to be cherished, but also to be a sign of the remainder of the harvest. As you leave, as you scatter, there is still more fruit to be cherished. There is more goodness to be reaped. There is more grace to be extended. That is our calling as a community. And that's what we're gonna talk about next week. That growing up is not only listening, it's not only a posture of listening, it is also the practice of doing doing good in the world for the life of the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us through your servant James. We pray really simply that you would make us, you would make us good listeners. We, would show, we ask that you would do something important, that you would show us our deficiencies. Lord, show us where we are quick to speak. Show us how we uh, fail to listen to others in the community. Show us how that we are quick to anger and how that actually diminishes us as people and as a, as a community. 
We ask, O oh Lord, that you would make us good listeners. Help us to follow you, to trust you in all things. For the name of your Son and the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.